A few years ago, God did a lot of work in my life as a pastor to reshape my ideas of, of the Great Commission and connecting with people. And it happened on a golf course. The church was growing. We were in a building campaign. It was very intense. I wasn't really connecting with people outside the body. It was just absorbing and taking all of my time. One thing I did was I decided to go to this particular golf course the same day every week. I became a fixture and got to know a half dozen different guys pretty well. I usually start the conversation, what are you doing? Where are you from? It takes the fourth hole for people to turn to me and say, well, what do you do for a living? I'm a minister. There's dead silence for a few holes as guys think on every word that came out of their mouth of previous holes before they found out I was a pastor. Two men in particular that I golfed with several times, Uh, one was a retired businessman, and the other was a former professor of philosophy at a major university in Boston. One time I said to them, okay, so you guys know that I'm in an evangelical church. What does it mean to you when you hear that? What do you think we're like? Both immediately agreed on a few statements. You're against gay marriage. You're against abortion. And you think everybody needs to believe and see things exactly like you do. That stayed with me. I believe abortion's murder. I believe God intended marriage for husband and wife. But the problem is when they say it, they see Christians standing in downtown Boston with placards that say, God hates gays. It's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. That's what they see when they say, that's what you believe. You see what I'm saying? And it got me thinking that the world saw even my church in terms of what we were against is judgmental and exclusive. And it confirmed my fears that we've done a better job creating enemies than we've come alongside people and helped them on a journey to come find Jesus Christ. I found uh, some videos I thought about showing you today, but they were largely videos of that Westboro Baptist Church, not this Westboro in our area, but the one out west. Their absolute hatred and their belief that God hates sinners. But as I was watching it, I thought, you know, if I show that, we're all going to think we're a lot better than them. And I think the church, by and large, has bought into something that has hurt the cause of the gospel. We've missed what the Bible says is the key to changing our culture. It's as though 30 years ago, Christian leaders from all over the world got together and said, we need to come up with some fresh ways to impact culture. And they broke the think tank down into several groups, and they all came back and shared their opinion. And the first group came and said, our idea is branding and marketing the church. We need to get people putting bumper stickers and fish on the back of their cars, and we need Christian T-shirts, and we just need to market ourselves a little better. So that went on the list. Another group stood up and said, we think we need to protest all that's going wrong in this culture. The more we're out there with signs saying what's wrong with society, the more we're going to impact culture. And that went on the agenda. And the third group got up and said, we think we need a political action group because if we can change the laws, people will live better. Now, of course, that think tank is fictional, but you could easily imagine that that happened because that is who we are in this society. When did we become the wing of any political party to the point where people of opposing political parties are our ideological enemy? When did Jesus say that's how you change culture? When did Jesus say standing up and protesting sinful action is somehow doing something in his name 
and that the bad reputation we receive from that is equivalent to persecution for the faith. Last time I remember seeing an image of Jesus before a crowd accusing someone of evil action, it was the Pharisees doing the accusing, and it was Jesus writing in the sand and saying, neither do I condemn you. And when did we believe that putting a fish on the back of our car, and then when the Darwinians put a fish with legs on the car, we got another one that was a big fish eating the Darwinian fish, that that was going to change culture. When did we figure that? Especially when we drive those cars and get angry at people for not going fast enough or for not moving when the light changes that classic story of the woman who was a Christian who was driving, and, and every time she stopped at the light, the guy behind her would beep, and she got mad at him the third or fourth time. Finally, she, she swore at the guy, and he said, I'm sorry, your bumper said, honk if you love Jesus. When did we become that? And how in the world do we think that's what Jesus had in mind for us to change culture? Peter has a different idea in a much more hostile culture. And it all boils down to these verses, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your souls. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We've forgotten that the gospel is not just something that sits on a doctrinal statement or on our website, that the gospel is not just a, a, a track that has four steps and a diagram that puts Jesus in the middle and gets us into heaven. The gospel has legs. There is both a gospel that we are to proclaim, but what earns us the right to proclaim that is the gospel that we are to live And it's in living that grace, that blessing, that gospel before the world around us that they are drawn to Christ and that the message is heard. Peter has that in mind as we come to this section of the book. So turn with me, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading at verse 9. We're going to take a big chunk today. We're going to go all the way to verse uh, 7 of chapter 3. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Slaves. 
Submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep gone astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abram, and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. <laughs> All right. We've got a lot to cover, don't we? The tough stuff. Our role as citizens in government, and in particular, the structure of the family. When we pull these passages out without understanding the context, it's easy to misunderstand them. And so consequently, they're used abusively rather than being what Peter intended them to be, which is to help us think through practical ways to live out the strategy that he's called us to. See, there's a big picture that you have to understand before you come to these three arenas of life. So stay with me. How does all that we've learned to this point apply to how we live our lives? That's the big question. And how, as a result of that, do we want the world to perceive us? And remember the culture he's in. Let's review. It's that there's a harsh reality. He refers to us as aliens and strangers and refers to the culture around us as pagans. We take that word in a very negative way, this evil, bad person. The word pagan in the Greek is translated as Gentiles, nations, cultures. That's all it means. He's just referring to the culture that is around us that is not part of this kingdom that we are a part of, this new community. We live in a world where we are aliens because we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. So he's really talking about two different citizenships, two different groups that live every day side by side. And he's saying, our job is to be ambassadors for Christ, which means that how we live speaks for the, the one who rules our kingdom. How we are to make a holy response is found in verse 16. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants 
of God. Now, it's interesting, the translators have chosen to translate the word doulos into servant. And they've chosen later on in verse 18 to translate uh, a different word into the word slave. In fact, the stronger word for slave is doulos. So our approach to the world around us has to be influenced by two primary things. One, a drive to live a life that reveals the transforming work of God in me. And to approach people with this first thing in mind, I am a slave to Christ. He owns me, and how I'm about to function is out of that life. Everything that he's going to talk about now going forward resounds with that theme. I encourage you to do some marking up with me here, because it really helps you see common themes. And I want you to, uh, starting in verse uh, 13, take the idea of live as servants of God. Circle that. And then circle the words, submit yourselves in verse 13. Then from that, draw a line down to live as servants of God. In verse 18, circle slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. And then in verse 1 of chapter 3, circle wives in the same way, be submissive. And then down in verse 7, circle husbands in the same way, be considerate. Each of these phrases is an application of what it means to live as a servant of God by serving others. So a holy response, living as servants of God, results in a happy result. Verse 15, we silence our accusers. Verse 12, people come to Christ. And then he goes on and shows us who has set the example for us. It's Christ himself. Verse 21, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Christ's example of being obedient to the Father and being submissive to that and a servant of all is important for us to see. Three things Peter teaches. One, Christ did not retaliate or make threats when treated cruelly. Second, he put himself in the hands of God. He didn't seek his own justice, didn't seek to defend himself. He knew that God knew. Third, he sacrificed himself to bring people to God. That is a three-part definition of what it means to live as a doulos, a bondservant of God. It's the grace of God. It's the love of God reaching out the hands and feet of Jesus that is the basis on which we connect with culture and bring the gospel. You know how cultures are changed? It's not by changing laws. You know, we might put a law in action until another group of Supreme Court justices get in place and call those things unconstitutional. All we're doing is using man's tools when God's given us a much better tool. You know how cultures are changed? One heart at a time through the transforming work of the gospel. I believe as a church we need to choose which game we're going to play. We're going to play the world's game of political activism, making enemies out of things that are totally unrelated to the gospel? Are we going to be the hands, the feet, and the heart of Jesus to people in this city 
so that when they see us, they see the living Christ and are drawn to him and are changed forever. I'll never forget the Sunday I stood up in front of my church, and at that time we had people that were getting pretty angry at me that I wasn't allowing political action and for people to sign things, and I just said, you know, those may be very valid things, but I've got to make a choice. I, I need people to see me either as God's messenger of peace and the gospel or as an opponent politically. And which do you think I'm going to choose? It's how we live our lives. It's how we live our lives. It's how we live our lives. Even in a culture where people begin by saying ill things of us that are unfair, in the end, Peter assures us that there will be those who by the life they see will be changed forever. On the day that God visits us, they will be right alongside us giving glory to God. Let's quickly look at these three areas in which we are to live this good life, living the true good life. The first one is that we're called to be good citizens. Good citizens. How does he put it? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to the governors who were sent by him, to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Submit is the word to every authority. The word submit is hupotasso, and it simply means to place ourselves under someone and to put them above us. And it can be applied in many ways. It can be applied in a position of authority. It could be applied in terms of putting someone's needs, aspirations, well-being before us, putting ourself, our well-being, our aspirations under theirs, and serving them by seeking their good. That's what the word means, to submit. And it is a recurring word in the life of the believers in every single arena of life. So what we are to do in this case is to recognize that we are to come under. God has put us under civil authorities, even though we're aliens and strangers here. We are to respect the government. So what, what does that mean? That means that we are to be good citizens. There's nothing wrong with being in the process, making your vote count towards things that matter to you. But it, it goes to how we obey the laws, what we do in our income taxes, what we hide, what we, what we don't hide. It's about giving Caesar what's Caesar's. And then he goes on, he talks about one of the reasons why God puts government in place, to establish and maintain civility, that God uses all governments in some way for his glory, but his intent for government is that good is affirmed, evil's punished. It maintains civility. We need to recognize that, that God has put authority in place. We may not agree with everything that they do, both in their private lives and in their political opinions, but God put them in place. That's part of how the world maintains civility. Be good citizens. He moves on to the second area. Not just good citizens, but good employees. Now, where do I get that, you're thinking, out of slaves and masters? You know, I know some guys that would like to think that's where the marriage thing is. Slaves, obey your masters. But that's not the point here. See, you have to understand that in the Roman Empire, there were 60 million slaves. The Greek word here for slave is oikates, and it means household servant. It's a much more affectionate term referring to Rome's working class. Actors, doctors, teachers, philosophers, lawyers, household workers were all part of this 
subclass within the Roman culture. They were the workforce. So if you're new at Scripture and you come to this idea about slaves and free, you could easily believe, like many people in the South in particular, wanted to make the Bible teach that slavery is condoned by Scripture. It's not as we understand slavery. That's not what Peter's addressing here. He's addressing life in the culture as it is. They have been freed in Christ. They're free men and women, but they still are in this culture, and this is who they are. Do it well. Do it for God's glory, even if it's a bad master. It's how you respond that matters most. And then he says you can suffer either for doing good, you can suffer for Christ's sake, or you can suffer for stupidity's sake. (laughs) You can suffer by just not being faithful at what you do. I can't tell you how many times I've run into Christians who are mad at their bosses, and when you talk about it, they're not very good employees. They're always grumbling, always fighting for everything that's theirs, filing some complaint. And worst of all, some of them will take an hour, hour and a half and witness to somebody on the job, and when they do that, they're stealing from their bosses. Think about that. There's so much I want to say here, and you can tell. I'm already regretting trying to do this in one sermon. But let's move on and look at the third area, because I think this is the one where there could be so much confusion. We're just going to touch on it and help you understand what it says. Wives are to serve their husbands, but let me be clear, Peter is equally teaching that husbands are to serve their wives. Let, Let me explain that to you. I want you to circle two other expressions. Verse 1 of chapter 3, circle the phrase, in the same way. And down in verse 7, when Peter addresses husbands, circle the phrase, in the same way. And the first thing we need to ask is, in in what? What, In what the same way? (laughs) What are they talking about? Peter is now bringing the very principles he's taught and the example he's put forward in Jesus Christ who sacrificed himself for the eternal well-being of those around him. And that's what he's referring to when he says, in the same way, this is how it's supposed to look at home. Now, in order to really embrace and understand what Peter's sharing here, you have to first of all recognize that he's dealing with people, some of whom have come to faith in Christ, but their spouses have not come to faith. It's also very similar to Paul's teaching on marriage in Ephesians 5. And for the sake of understanding, let me just quickly take you there. Ephesians chapter 5. We would often come to this passage and begin reading verse 22, which as it's translated reads, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. But the passage begins the verse before it. The whole context of not just what he's going to say about husbands and wives and about, in chapter 6, about children and parents and about slaves and masters, is all set by verse 21, which says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know what Greek word that is? (laughs) Same Greek word that is used by Peter in serving and submitting to one another. The very first thing you have to understand in the home husbands and wives, is that you are first and foremost brothers and sisters in Christ before you're anything else. And who you are as husband and wife does not trump that. You are called to serve one another out of reverence for Christ. So if you want a really a good teaching on marriage, start with all the one another's in the Bible that have to do with being part of the same body of Christ and focus on doing those things. I guarantee you'll have an awesome marriage. 
But what we do is we focus on how these roles are defined and we try to turn them into a pecking order. We try to make it about authority and to scripture, it's not about authority, it's about serving, about submitting to one another. In fact, verse 22, which says, wives, submit to your husbands in our translation, in the Greek, doesn't even have the word submit in it. It's implied from verse 21. Literally, it would be this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Wives to your husbands is to the Lord. So it begins with us living in mutual submission. It's just a question of how that looks now in the home. Scripture frames mutual submission to one another in the home around the fact that we are equal before God, but we're different. Our roles, our needs are very different. The male psyche is wired to have a deep need for respect. Similarly, a woman at her core has a great need to be cherished and valued. The way we serve each other is to meet those deepest needs. Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, value and cherish your wives. And here's how Peter puts it. Let's just jump back there quickly. He says, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that uh, if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words. So, Women have come to faith in Christ, but they're in a home where traditional ideas and resistance may exist. And and, and Peter just simply says, serve and honor your husband. Let them see what it looks like when you honor Christ by honoring them. Have a serving heart and focus on inner beauty. This is not to be seen as a prohibition to wear makeup and to look nice. If the barn needs painting, paint it. I can't believe I just said that. I just can't believe that came out of my mouth. (laughs) This is not a moratorium on looking nice. But what he's saying is that's not where your beauty's found. You ever met somebody that you first look at them and you go, wow, that's a knockout. And then they open their mouth and they become the ugliest person you've ever seen? Our real beauty is on the inside. Women, focus on those things. Focus on a servant's heart and on your inner beauty. But then he turns to men, and he says two really important things to men, that this is the real counterculture. He says, men, be considerate and respectful. When he refers to wives as weaker vessels, he's not saying weaker as in incapable, precious. It's the difference between men being a paint bucket and women being a wine glass. You carry slop in a paint bucket. You can carry dirt in a paint bucket. You put wine. You put really beautiful things in a wine glass. Men need to understand that women are to be regarded as precious vessels and treat them with care and respect. But then he says something that's very radical. Listen to this. They are heirs with you of the gracious gift of life that nothing will hinder your prayers. That was a radical thing. This was a male-dominated culture. And Peter's saying to men, Your wife is your partner, not the help. She, like you, has direct access to the throne of grace. She is your sister. She is a joint heir with you in Christ. That is a call to men to rise up and pull women up with them as partners and to serve them in that way. Give them the respect that they're due. If I could reboot Christianity, one of the things I'd change is the notion that Christianity supports a male-dominated culture. Christianity cures that and puts men in their rightful role. It's not unisex. And puts women in their place of honor 
partners, joint heirs with Christ. See, those are the ways that Peter says this fleshes out as we live this good life before the world. See, they need to see it in how we conduct ourselves in the public arena. They need to see it in how we conduct ourselves in the workplace. They need to see it when they see in our homes the respect and honor that we have and how we serve one another and recognize each other's unique needs and serve and sacrifice to to fulfill those needs in one another. The world needs to see such good lives that they will be silenced in their accusations and they will say, I need some of that. I want some of that. And when the day comes that we stand before Christ, they'll be standing there with us. I love the fact that we can turn to the Lord's table today because it is the model for us. It is not only what gives us access to God, the death of Jesus, our surrendering to him as our Savior and Lord. It is the model for how the world is to see us. So as you come to the table and remember what the bread symbolizes, the body of Christ bruised, beaten, offered for us, the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of our sins, that you remember that Jesus called us to follow that example in surrendering ourselves so that others may know him. Father, as we come to the table this morning, we bless you for it. Thank you for the truth in your word. Father, may the world see us live these lives as servants of Christ by serving one another, by serving our neighbors, by by serving society in his name. In Jesus' name, amen.